Welcome to the Morning News Podcast for Friday, August 14th. We begin with a look at the upcoming transition from the government's CERB program back to the traditional EI. We hear from a professor of business at Carleton University on why he thinks the transition will be far from smooth. Are social bubbles providing a false sense of security? We speak with a psychologist who says we need to reevaluate social bubbles as many areas of society begin to reopen. Then we look at the connection between healthy vision and learning. We talk with a local optometrist on the importance of getting eye exams for your children ahead of the new school year. And finally, it's a chance to get the family out of the house and learn how food gets from farm to table. We hear details about this weekend's Alberta Open Farm Days event taking place across the province. Normally in this slot, we're joined by Danielle Smith, brought to you by Jamin Built, building resort-style bungalows in the exclusive community of Riversong in Cochrane. Employment Minister Carla Qualtroff made assurances on Wednesday that the federal government would smoothly funnel millions of Canadians from its key COVID-19 financial aid program into uh, employment insurance as a major end-of-month deadline looms. With all the details on this transition, we're speaking with Ian Lee, Sprott School of Business, Carleton University. Good morning to you, Ian. Good morning, Andrew. And I believe one of the uh, phrases that Minister Qualtroff uh, used was seamlessly. Uh, How do you see this working when we're talking about millions of Canadians making this transition? Uh, I think it's going to be the very, very opposite of seamless. And there is a logic to what I'm saying. It isn't just a pure assertion. And let me unpack this now. Um, The CERB was set up um, so that basically you raised your hand. You said, look, I made so much and I'm now out of work. And here's my name and here's my bank account. Send me the money, 2000 a month. The That violated, uh, and why I was critical of it at the time, mm-hmm. not, not the idea of giving support, but it violated the two most fundamental principles of the Unemployment Insurance Act, which was established a very long time ago, 1940. It was introduced in Parliament of Canada by Mackenzie King at the time. And that those principles have been supported very strongly by Canadians ever since. And the two principles are, beyond the obvious one, you have to have been laid off or lost your job. I mean, that goes without saying. But the two principles are, you don't get 100% of your income. You get a percentage of your income from unemployment insurance. Mm-hmm. And secondly, you must be actively seeking work, even if you're in the middle of a recession and there's no jobs because of the idea that we don't want you to think that this is a a permanent entitlement. We want you to be actively seeking employment. Those two principles were violated by the CERB. Okay, that was their decision. Fair enough. Now they're going to fold the CERB into EI, but the principles of CERB are the complete diametric opposite of the principles of the unemployment insurance system. So to say that that's going to be seamless is, is just simply laughable. That is to say, they're going to be telling people one of two things. Either we're going to change the Unemployment Insurance Act so we cover you 100%, which we've never done under unemployment insurance, uh, or or there are people in CERB who are going to see a reduction in their benefits. That's not seamless. And then secondly, they're going to have to act if they cannot any longer turn down offers as there have been many instances reported across Canada where the person, and I'm not, I'm not criticizing these people in the CERB who were contacted by their restaurant and said, come back to work. And they said, well, wait a minute, I was making $1,000 a month in the restaurant, and I'm getting 2000 a month on the CERB, so I'm staying home. Mm-hmm. Thank you very much. I would have done the same thing, quite frankly. 
Those are the rules. I don't have to be searching for a job. I have the right to turn down a job under the CERB rules. I am very critical that we even set that system up in the first place. But given that we did, those were the rules. Now we're saying, whoops, <laughs> we're changing our mind. We're rolling the CERB and DI. And uh, those two principles that we told you, we're going to cover you 100% or even more. And you don't have to look for a job. Uh, we're changing our mind. That's going out the window. That's not seamless. I got the million dollar question for you then, Ian. We've got about a minute, so a huge question, one minute. Um, what's the correct way to do this transition? Well, I do support the idea of folding into the, the unemployment insurance system. Uh, that's made no mistake about it. And I have no problem with the government expanding it because there's been a lot of criticism long before the COVID crisis about how the uh, unemployment insurance system had become overly restrictive. Okay, let's expand it. Let's uh, make it um, more encompassing. But at the same time, they're going to have a hell of a time, but they've got to go down this road, say, look, you've got to be actively searching for a job, and if you turn one down, you lose your benefits. And secondly, we cannot give you 200% of your income. Some people on the CERB were getting 200, they were getting twice as much on the CERB as they were when they were working. That's a complete, everyone understands that's not sustainable. And so we've got to wean them off that onto back to the principles, time true principles that Canadians overwhelmingly support of the unemployment insurance system. You get a percentage of your income when you're laid off. They have to be working for it, looking for a job, and it's for a time-specific period. I believe it's one year on EI. Well, it's going to certainly be an interesting transition. We appreciate your thoughts, Ian. Thanks very much. That is Ian Lee, Sprott School of Business, Carleton University. Time now for helicopter traffic. For West District by Truman, Main Street's highlight 20-foot sidewalks and integrated bike paths. In the northwest, there are construction crews out on the ramp from southbound Stony Trail to 16th Avenue. There are backups between 5 and 10 minutes, starting by Nose Hill Drive. There's some ongoing construction southbound Crowchild Trail over top of Bow Trail. The left lane is closed until 5 o'clock this evening. Just very light delays there at the moment. Taking a look at your major routes, southbound Highway 2 out of Airdrie, about a 15-minute drive from Yankee Valley Boulevard down to Memorial, and on northbound Deerfoot, 15 minutes from Cranston and Seton up to 17th Avenue. Already earning PC Optimum points on groceries and health and beauty? Well, you can earn even faster when you fuel up at ESSO and mobile stations. Visit pcoptimum.ca for details. For the 770 CHQR traffic helicopter, I'm Phil Jensen. There is construction southbound Crowchild Trail over top of Bow Trail. The left lane is closed until 5 o'clock this evening. Downtown, northbound McLeod Trail at 9th Avenue. The left lane is closed until tomorrow afternoon. Southbound McLeod Trail at 10th Avenue. The left lane is also closed there until tomorrow afternoon. And we just did a pass over Glenmore Trail in the southwest, seeing lots of pylons and crews out between Sarcee and Crowchild. There are at least two lanes open in each direction, but expect minor delays. Already earning PC Optimum points on groceries and health and beauty? Well, you can earn even faster when you fuel up at SO at mobile stations. Visit pcoptimum.ca for details. From the 770 CHQR traffic helicopter, I'm Bill Jensen. Tiny bubbles make me warm all over. I think operator Brian is looking for some kind of recognition or an award or maybe a cookie with his music choices. As we're going to be talking about bubbles right now. Experts say we need to reevaluate uh, reevaluate how social bubbling actually works. In fact, our next guest says bubbles may be providing a false sense of security. We're joined now by Steve Jordans, a psychology professor at the University of Toronto. Good morning to you, sir. Good morning, Andrew. Great to be with you. 
Thanks for being here. And let's talk about this false sense of security. How can that be? Because we know the people in our bubbles. Um, I guess we should, you know, back it up a bit and talk about the definition of a bubble or how you define a bubble. Yeah, well, you know, for me, they made a whole lot of sense. And I, w- I put out a course early on, a free course to help people manage their, their mental health during COVID. And, you know, when I heard about the concept of a bubble, I thought, okay, given we're all under quarantine and we've been under quarantine for a while, um, it made a lot of sense that groups of people uh, could hang out together exclusively. And, you know, given everybody knows that they're virus-free going into this, then that bubble is a safe environment where we can essentially behave as though there is no COVID. Uh, and we've been doing that for, for a long time now, and I think it has been great at that period. It's just as we enter now into this phase where we're, we're not staying exclusive to our bubble and where bubble people are starting to go out into the world, that's when the safety that we think is there may be suddenly lost and, in fact, could be the reverse. So what you're saying is the bubble itself isn't the problem. Uh, moving deeper through the pandemic and the erosion as things open up is the problem. Yeah, I mean, if, if you literally think of the analogy of, of a bubble, it's a, it's a membrane that holds, you know, certain stuff in and other stuff out. But as soon as the stuff that's in starts going out, the bubble literally pops. Um, and, and that's what's really happened now. Um, we have no better security inside of our bubbles than outside of our bubbles, but we continue to behave as though we do. So we don't wear masks, you know, inside of our bubble worlds. We maybe are hugging our grandchildren. We're, we're behaving in all the ways we did before COVID. And, you know, that's where the danger comes is that we have these habits. And now if a child goes to school or someone goes to work and they bring a virus back with them, we are now very likely to contract it because we are, you know, not taking any precautions. Whereas we go to a grocery store, we take the precautions. So the grocery store may suddenly be a safer place than our homes, uh, at least if we don't, you know, think this through a little bit. And I would guess that, uh, you know, the safety of a bubble uh, not a big deal when nothing's open, but when uh, society and those restaurants and, and activities reopen, the stores, if you will, the malls, uh, the bubble can change because uh, different people have different social needs within the bubble. So I guess it's not knowing exactly where the your bubble mates have gone. Yeah, uh, and and I think, you know, the bigger story I'm trying to tell, and it's certainly not any sense of fear-mongering, mm-hmm. but we're entering into a, a, a stage here where we are going out a lot more, and especially with schools beginning, where we're sending our kids to schools. Um, and so during this stage, we, you know, we've kind of earned this because we've got our disease um, sort of low, the numbers low. All I'm kind of suggesting is as we go through this phase, we should expect the spike mm-hmm. uh, to some extent, which means we should expect, you know, some of the kids to be carriers and such and so my real message is those compromised people within our bubble may want to sort of step back and and kind of go to more of an isolation state for a few weeks as we you know kind of release the children so to speak and you know let's all keep an eye on the numbers let's see where things go uh, if we're lucky we won't have much of a spike and then everything will be fine but if we do have a spike it's just very important that the vulnerable people you know be taking precautions even now around their their family and loved ones yeah, we heard the same from our chief medical officer of health dr dina hinshaw yeah. here in the province that you have to expect the the uh, increases, the ebbs and flows when you reopen. But maybe does, could this just not mark the end of the bubbles? Because, uh, you know, if things are reopening, yeah. we can indeed go for, for lunch or dinner with somebody if we're sitting socially distanced. Or we can indeed go to the mall or see the movies. 
Yeah, and, and, and I think we will sort of naturally do a bubble-like thing in, in, in the future. So we are going to tend to spend most of our time around people that, you know, where we kind of know where they go and, and what they're doing. Um, but, but we still just have to be a little bit more careful, especially those vulnerable people. You know, it might make sense for grandma and grand and granddad to wear a mask if you're having some sort of family gathering. And it might make sense for other members of the family to do it around them. Um, and, and this will feel like a step backwards, but I kind of urge people to kind of think of it as, you know, the kind of chess analogy where sometimes you have to lose a piece to move to, to, to win or, or you take one step back to take two steps forward. And, and I think that's really what we're talking about here. Everything is going by and large pretty well. We are seeing some resurgences throughout the world. We don't want that here. And so we just want to manage this release. And I think we just want to be mindful to the fact that we are going to see spikes and those spikes now can affect us. So, so really the security of the bubble, we, we just shouldn't put any faith in that. We just want to be careful for these next few weeks. If we do the next few weeks right, there's a lot to be gained on the other side. And it's just the, uh, the other challenge is we've never been through this before. A year ago, if you yeah. said bubble, you would you'd think like, you know, bubbles. Not, not, yeah. This is the craziest time. I'd never, I'd never heard the concept, you know, until it first came up. And that, again, I'd had this course, and I was saying how people do need their their social connections. You know, we that, that's very important to us in times of stress. And you know, that grandchildren that can hug their grand grandfather or grandmother, that's really great for both parties. So when I first heard the concept, I thought, wow, that's a great idea. If people know that they're safe, those people can, you know, benefit from that social connection. It's just we can't pretend we're safe anymore because we're really just not. It's a different time for sure. Thank you very yeah. much, Steve. Yep, thank you. That is Steve Jordans, a psychology professor at the University of Toronto. Time now for helicopter traffic for West District by Truman. Life happens at hellowestdistrict.com. Your major routes are all still moving along really nicely this morning, but there are some spots of construction to watch for across the city. In the southwest on Glenmore Trail between Starcy and Crowchild, there are lots of crews and pylons out across the center median. Uh, Everything is moving along fairly smoothly. It might slow you down just a little, however. Over on McLeod Trail, just north of Heritage Drive, there is that ongoing bridge work. Lanes are narrowed in both directions. Very minor delays at the moment. Also on McLeod Trail, downtown northbound at 9th Avenue, the left lane is closed until tomorrow afternoon. The southbound left lane on McLeod Trail at 10th Avenue is also closed until tomorrow afternoon. And on southbound Crowchild Trail over top of Bow Trail, the left lane is closed until 5 o'clock this evening. Tonight's Lotto Max jackpot is an estimated $20 million. Dream to the max with an estimated $20 million from Lotto Max. From the 770 THQR traffic helicopter, I'm Phil Jensen. Nine oh eight on the morning news. It's hard to believe school is less than one month away, but it's Sure to look a lot different this fall, whether kids are learning at home or in the classroom. Vision is paramount to their learning success. To discuss the role vision plays in learning, signs and symptoms that may indicate a child is experiencing vision problems, and enhanced safety protocols in clinics, we're joined by Dr. Farah Sunderji, optometrist with Ideology. I should know this. Uh, ideology, easy for me to say, Farah. Good morning to you. Good morning. Thank you for taking the time, and uh, it's interesting because I have a routine with my kids. Uh, just one more thing on the checklist before we go back to school, and I like to do it because I don't have to take them out of school for the uh, appointments during the school year, uh, but you talk a lot about the importance of vision when it comes to our kids and their learning. What is the connection? 
So, Angie, whether your child is going back to the classroom or they're <clears throat> doing online learning, 80% of learning is visual. So if a child is not see- seeing well, they are likely struggling in school. And so this is why we recommend children have an eye exam with their optometrist annually and prior to the beginning of school year so we can ensure that your child's eyes are healthy, that they're seeing well, they're working well together, they're focusing, they're tracking, um, and these are really essential for learning. And as, as far as the cost is concerned, if a, a patient is under 18, tell us about that when it comes to the eye exams. So Alberta Healthcare covers eye exams for children between the ages of 0 to 18 years on an annual basis. It also covers medical visits as well for all age groups. And um, so we begin eye exams as early as six months of age and thereafter annually. So the financial barrier, not a barrier whatsoever. There's no reason not to bring them in. Uh, Let's also talk about this interesting time that we call COVID-19 and the pandemic. You might have some people out there, uh, Dr. Farah, saying, you know, I'm not comfortable going in. Let's talk about the protocols in place uh, for optometrists. Yeah, so um, when you, if you are concerned about coming in, we do have telehealth. And so if you're having any conditions that, you know, you're concerned about, you can call into your optometrist. We can set up an appointment for telehealth where we call you and discuss your issues, come up with a diagnosis, a treatment plan, um, and we can go for there. Um, but in office, we've taken many measures to ensure both the safety of our teams, our staff, as well as the patients. So those include doing a screener, um, starting from the triage point on the phone to when you arrive, we check your temperature, we have sanitization of all our equipment, of the hands, we have masks that are worn, we also have shields um, on various equipment pieces, uh, as well as social distancing in office. So um, we've been trying to keep it very safe for everyone. Got to be difficult because we've heard from other um, healthcare professionals who say, you know what, you cannot ignore your health even though you have these concerns. Other health issues go on, and particularly when it comes to your eyes, uh, leaving a, a problem could be quite detrimental if it's if it, if it's months and months, couldn't it? For sure. And with children, we're actually finding now that you know they're coming in, a lot of them are needing glasses because mm-hmm. during COVID they've been doing so much online learning. They're growing, and, you know, as a child grows, so do your eyes, and so does vision, um, therefore changes with all, of the, with all of that. And so, you know, a lot of them are coming in squinting, rubbing their eyes, um, and so you can tell that there's definitely been changes, and so this is like a great time to bring in your child to get seen. You mentioned the rubbing eyes and squinting, probably two indicators, but what else as parents, because if, if your child is, has a stomach ache, they might let you know about it or a headache, uh, but they might not even know that their vision has, has gone a little downhill. What can we, what can we look for um, in, our, in our children to know that they have to get in there, that there might be an, an issue with seeing? So often children don't express if they have vision problems because a lot of them feel the way they see is normal, and we as parents often assume our child sees fine as well. So things to look for include, you know, if you're noticing your child has a lack of concentration, they're avoiding reading, maybe they're holding objects close to the face. Uh, when they're reading, they may be skipping lines or they may, they may say, you know, words are jumping on the page or they're seeing double. These are things to watch out for. 
But often enough, they might start the squinting, and that might be one of the signs, or rubbing their eyes is really key. And so a lot of times we find things in office that maybe the parents didn't even know was going on, and the child will say, yep, that's happening. So that's why an eye exam is so important. They say that the eyes, uh, you know, can also be the window to your health as well. So let's let's talk about some of those things that, as an optometrist, uh, Dr. Sanderji, that you, um, you know, maybe can recognize, and di- if not diagnose, you know, put somebody further along the medical uh, path to finding a, a problem beyond their eyes. For sure. And that's actually the reason why I went into optometry was because the eyes actually show a lot of what's going on in the body. So, for example, we may have patients who come in and they have early signs of diabetes, high blood pressure, um, they can have low iron, um, we can tell if they've been, you know, exercising based on their the health of the blood vessels that we look at in the eye. And so often enough, we can diagnose different medical conditions that could be happening in a patient just through um, an eye exam, and then we would then get in touch with your family physician or if it needs to be triaged to an ophthalmologist. We work very well with both um, sets of physicians and so it's really neat what you can find out during an eye exam. I'm wondering, and this is something that I've never really thought of uh, until I, I have a, a two teen girls, and my 13-year-old, she wears glasses, and I thought about it, and I thought, I wonder if, uh, you know, as she gets older and more active and perhaps wants to do something in the sport world, would she be eligible to wear contact lenses? What is the age uh, that, uh, you know, a child can wear contact? So studies have shown that we can actually start in tweens and teens, and so... In fact, you talk about glasses with children. Um, Myopia or nearsightedness is becoming super common in children. In fact, it's estimated by 2050 that 50% of the world's population will be wearing glasses or nearsighted. And so some of the risk factors for that include, you know, children between the ages of 5 to 9, if one or both parents wear glasses, if they're doing less than two hours of outdoor activity, or more than 1.5 hours of near activity, if they have Asian ethnicity, these all put you at risk for nearsightedness. And so one of the treatment options is contact lenses. And so we often find children as early as seven, eight um, are interested in wearing contact lenses as one of the treatment procedures. So we don't find it very difficult. As long as the child is motivated to wear the contact lenses, Mm -hmm. we have really great success in office. Different areas of the medical world, like, you know, doctors, it'd be a pediatrician. Uh, we have uh, pediatric dentists. But when it comes to optometrists, are, are there specialists for children's eyes, or can any licensed optometrist uh, really take a look at my children? Yeah, so we're all trained to see children. Um, some of us have residencies in pediatrics where um, we do a little bit more, such as vision therapy. Um, and we also work with pediatric ophthalmologists as well in case referrals are needed. But any optometrist should be good to see your child. And if there's anything else that's needed, um, a referral can be made for vision therapy. Or if there's surgery or any of that that's needed, then a referral can be made to a pediatric ophthalmologist. Thanks for the information and the reminder. You've got to get those kids in there. Appreciate and if, it. Uh, awesome. If you don't have an optometrist, mm-hmm. it's really important to go visit www.optometrist.ab.ca and you can actually find a local optometrist close to your home mm-hmm. in case you don't have one. Yeah, well, I mean, if it's a one-stop shop, hop online and take care of that. We appreciate it. Thanks for your time. Yes, thank you so much. That is Dr. Farah Sunderji, optometrist with Ideology.
Right now, 917. Time for helicopter traffic for West District by Truman. Only one traffic light from the mountains. Daytime construction is now underway in the southwest northbound 14th Street at Heritage Drive. There is only a single left lane open. Delays are starting to build. Elbow Drive might be a better route. Over on McLeod Trail, just north of Heritage Drive, there is that ongoing bridge work. Just some minor north and southbound delays at the moment. Over in the northwest, southbound Stony Trail approaching 16th Avenue. Lots of construction crews out. Delays of around 10 minutes from Nose Hill Drive. And on southbound Crowchild Trail over top of Bow Trail, the left lane is closed until 5 o'clock this evening. Already earning PC Optimum points on groceries and health and beauty? Well, you can earn even faster when you fuel up at SON Mobile Stations. Visit PCOptimum.ca for details. For the 770 CHQR Traffic Helicopter, I'm Phil Jensen. Music right there for you. Kick off your Friday morning. It's a chance to learn how food gets from farm to table. Alberta Open Farm Days taking place this weekend. And for information on what it's all about and how perhaps you can get involved, we're joined by Tim Carson from Alberta Agricultural Societies. Good morning to you, Tim. Good morning. How are you this morning? Good. Thank you for joining us. Uh, tell us what is Alberta Farm Days. Alberta Open Farm Days is, uh, uh, we're in our eighth year for the program. Uh, it's a chance to connect the producer to the consumer directly and uh, a great opportunity to meet the farmer and find out where all the great food comes from here in our province. Okay, so uh, how do we do this? I understand it's, you know, you, anybody can uh, look in a book and get online, but you want to really give people a more tangible experience, right? Absolutely. You can go to our website, which is uh, open, uh, pardon me, albertafarmdays.ca. And uh, you will find all of the host farms listed there, along with a, uh, a Google map. Uh, so you'll have an idea where they are. Uh, this year, due to COVID, uh, we've actually uh, requested that all of the people uh, register mm-hmm. to the farms that they, uh, they're going to go to. Uh, that allows that uh, host to uh, manage the numbers of people and uh, make sure that everybody is staying safe and having a wonderful experience. What I like about this is it's not just a, you know one place to go. Uh, it sounds like all four corners of the province uh, might be an, an opportunity to visit. Is that right? That's true. Yes, we have uh, just about eighty farms uh, listed this year. It's down quite a bit from from last year. We were at one hundred and fifty, but uh, we've got uh, some great places to go. Everything from the uh, the standard barnyard animal to see from the uh, pigs and chickens and, and cattle, but uh, we've also got alpacas and bison and everything in between. We've even got some uh, uh, local farms that are, are providing a, a picnic lunch that you can buy and take off and, and uh, enjoy in our rural area. Any age restrictions or literally could you bring up, you know, children in strollers to, to grandma and grandpa with you? Uh, right from, uh, yep, the kids in strollers right to grandma and grandpa. It is truly a uh, a family event. Uh, there is no uh, fee to get on to any of the farms. Uh, they may have some things there that you can buy. Mm-hmm. Certainly uh, uh, pack a, a cooler if you're interested in actually purchasing some of the food right directly from the from the producer. Um, you know, make sure you're wearing some uh, proper footwear. Uh, oftentimes the uh, flip-flop is not something that is best walked across the barnyard in, but uh, it, it's a great opportunity to really see uh, how well the uh, the farmer is is taking care of uh, the land environmentally and ensuring that they're able to produce the best food in the world really um, 
here in Alberta. It's also a great opportunity to get out, out of the city and actually travel across and through our rural communities. We have a, an extremely beautiful province. And it's albertafarmdays.ca to register, is that right? That's correct. Good stuff. Thank you so much, and uh, maybe we'll see you out there, Tim. Terrific. Thank you very much. That's Tim Carson, CEO, Alberta Association of Agricultural Societies.